Welcome to the Ben Don't Break podcast. I'm Aaron Schweitzer, your host, along with the region's most enterprising reporter, Laurel Bronze. This podcast is powered by The Source Weekly, Ben's locally owned newspaper. Uh, the podcast is generously supported by Worthy Brewing, putting education first, utilizing green technologies, and experimenting daily to brew the best damn beer in the Pacific Northwest. This allows them to tread lightly on the earth as possible, living out their mantra, earth first, beer second. Our guest today is Ben Gordon. He is the new executive director for Simpson Oregon Land Watch, began Jan, June 1. BA in Anthropology from the University of Colorado Boulder, Central Oregon Field Organizer for the Oregon League of Conservation Voters. He was the Outreach Coordinator for Thousand Friends of Oregon, taught forest ecology at the Opal Creek Ancient Forest Center. Probably most interestingly on this list, conducted frog research for New Zealand's Department of Conservation. We'll touch on that. Through a hike, the Pacific Crest Trail, and most recently worked at the Oregon Natural Desert Association for the past eight years. Ben, thanks for joining us. Thank you. It's great to be on with you. How, uh, so how is your transition from uh, one local uh, organization to the other going? It's going really well. It's certainly been a wild ride, um, to state the obvious, as a result of COVID times and trying to step into a, a new role and go through a transition with uh, Landwatch's founding executive director who just stepped down, Paul Dewey. Um, he was great and gracious, as has been the rest of the staff and the board, and helping me to come up to speed in our remote digs for the time being. So not without its challenges, but it's been fully engrossing and I've enjoyed it immensely. How, um, what inspired you to pursue a role in uh, environmental conservation and stewardship? Um, it seems like you've you got into it pretty early? Yeah, good question. Um, so I grew up in Maryland, suburban Maryland. Uh, my dad was a land use attorney growing up. And I was just always drawn to these little pockets of nature that we had in the suburbs. And um, from the time I was really small, whenever I had the opportunity, I would choose to seek out time kind of playing in the creeks and picking up frogs and snakes. And I was just always really interested in the natural world. I mean, it wasn't until I was a student at the University of Colorado uh, when I had the opportunity to attend a biodiversity conservation management seminar in New Zealand that my eyes really became open to um, natural resources as a career path. Um, I grew up in a place where people were doctors and lawyers and diplomats, and I just didn't know about the field. So um, I had a really formative experience in New Zealand and that Coming back from that, having one more year at the University of Colorado, I did everything I could to set myself up to land a job in the field. So through internships and being part of on-campus environmental groups. And that kind of just uh, launched me into the career I've been on for the last 16 years and have loved, loved uh, every minute of. How long were you hanging out with the Kiwis and uh, <laughs> the frog research? Uh, I was kicking it with the Kiwis for one year. They were amazing. Okay. Um, frog research was part of that seminar that I was mentioning. And so uh, I and about 20 other students from all over the states met in New Zealand. And then uh, we jumped on this magic school bus and kind of hopped all over both islands in New Zealand, working with Department of Conservation, having access to parts of the country that were closed to the public where they're trying to rehab T&E species. Wow. And the kind of capstone project that each of us had to do came in the final month of that program. So mine was uh, frog research on Leopelma archii, Archie's frog. 
it was a wild experience. I got to um, camp in this cloud forest and between the hours of midnight and 4 a.m. I would go out to um, catch individual specimens and um, I was trying to prove a theory that they each have a unique pattern on their upper lip. So I had to catch these tiny frogs like the size of our thumbs uh, and get them on a pedestal so I could photograph them. And um, it turns out that the research question uh, was answered in the affirmative that they do all have a unique pattern on their upper lip. Huh. And that's what they've since um, Department of Conservation has been able to uh, catalog them. And now they're, they're able to detect the trend. Um, it's an imperiled species because of a chytrid fungus that affects them systemically. But um, hoping that the research proves useful and uh, we can save this. Yeah. Well, my son did a gap year in New Zealand. He wasn't as focused, it sounds like, as you were. But uh, <laughs> I was fortunate to get over there. It's an amazing country. And I just it sure enjoyed is. it immensely. Um, so give me a little insight into how your, your work has been affected by the pandemic. I know you, you took the job relatively new. And um, how what's that been like? Mm -hmm. You know, I'd say a couple things. Obviously, the just in terms of the internal workings, the team structure, in a lot of ways, it's forced us to be better aligned. I think uh, being new to the team, it's, it's obvious that there's a lot of talent on the team and everyone is sort of out doing the good work on behalf of the community um, that each person feels is necessary. And so in a lot of ways, there are a lot of sort of uh, free agents working on programs uh, in a disparate fashion, but as a result of COVID, the team now meets weekly and I think there's a lot more synergy. So that's a real plus. Um, something else that uh, another way that COVID has affected the work, certain things and timelines that the organization was working on toward and within, they've been stretched indefinitely. So something we'll talk about later, the Habitat Conservation Plan was something that Landwatch expected to be investing a lot of time and energy into during the summer. Um, that has been pushed off until fall or winter perhaps. And so timelines have been extended. And um, I think a benefit to me personally coming in, joining a team now and realizing that a lot of our best laid plans have to be retooled. Um, we're kind of hitting pause and creating some new uh, short-term work plans to get us through the end of the year, just recognizing that everything is different than we thought it would be at the beginning of the year. Yeah, I, I seem to remember in the last recession, there was a, a real pause in development, gave conservationists a lot of time to work a little bit more. There were more negotiations. I think some good work came out of that. And it was a nice period where you didn't hear all the jackhammers in construction. <laughs> What's the background for Ben in those pre-recession days? It's very similar now, although it hasn't slowed as much, surprisingly, as it had been. Yeah, and that's, a, that's an astute observation. I think it is something that ties to the work. You know, there was a, there was a momentary pause where um, Landwatch wasn't seeing as many development proposals come across the city and county's desk, but that was short-lived. And already, right. you know, I think something that um, our communities are going to feel pretty profoundly is that anybody who was considering moving to Central Oregon for lifestyle choices and maybe was putting it off for some other time, people who have resources now, they're not going to put it off. You know, whether it's they're right. going to make move whole cloth or they want a second home here to know that if something like this, if this persists or something like this happens in the future, they have a place as desirable as Bend to uh, retreat to. Um, and 
You know, one of the things that we keep hearing about the pandemic that kind of feeds into what we're talking about is um, the environmental benefits of the pandemic. Do you think that's a fairy tale or is that real? Like, of course, I've seen the videos of panicking monkeys and rats in New Orleans and stuff, but beyond that. Yeah, that's it's a great question. And I think short term, we see some indications that if we change our patterns and our habits profoundly, they can have a lasting impact on you know, staving the dire effects of climate change, uh, improving the outcome for imperiled wildlife species, you know, even just improving the experience that wildlife have in a human-centric, on a human-centric planet. So I, I think all that is true, but it really speaks more to um, whether as humans we're willing to make long-term changes, because if this goes on for a few months and then we go back to business as usual, I don't think it makes much of a difference. Yeah, I've also noticed, I mean, and this certainly popped up in the skyline forest area that while, you know, maybe in in town, things are a little bit slower, certainly out in the mountains and out in these places that people may have felt were their own little, you know, wilderness getaways here in Bend, they're overrun these days, mm-hmm. more mountain bikers, more hikers. Are you hearing about that? Yeah, and uh, one of the places I'm hearing it from are friends who own bike shops. Um, across the country, bike shops are doing better than they've ever done. Um, there's a run on... You know, people still want to experience freedom. And I think, um, you know, imagine being in a city where access to nature has been closed down, even to use Portland during, there was a, at least a couple of months there where their trails were just closed outright. And so people were going, right. what can I do? How can I get out and move my body, um, you know, kind of check out for a little while and bikes became one of those safe harbors. So um, that's certainly been the case um, as an avid recreationist myself. I do ride the trails a lot, and I've certainly noticed uh, increased congestion as we're, uh, during this time of COVID. Yeah. Laurel, do you want to fire at some questions at Ben? Sure. Um, can you talk a little bit about Oregon's land use laws and how that intersects with what your organization does? Yeah, happily. Um, so for listeners who aren't as familiar with the land use system as um, the devotees of Landwatch are. Oregon is unique in that since the early 70s, it has had in place this land use system that was ultimately designed by the likes of um, former Governor Tom McCall, um, visionaries like Henry Richmond. And back then, uh, Oregon's economy hinged on agriculture and timber. And I mean, certainly agriculture is still a mainstay of the economy, timber a little bit less so than it used to be. But the vision was how do we preserve these resource lands in perpetuity? And there was a realization when you looked at California, you looked at other states in the country at that time, sprawl was having this profound effect on farm and forest lands. And so Oregon said, we need to do something to preserve this economic engine into the future. And as they started to design it, they realized, well, it also matters a lot to how people experience our state in terms of quality of life. And so uh, Senate Bill 100 passed, and then there was a, um, an effort to define the goals of the program, of which there are 19 now. And they include things like um, public participation. So when there are uh, proposed developments, especially big ones, there's an opportunity for the community to weigh in. Um, what, how, uh, how land use will affect wildlife habitat, another big one. That's another one of the goals. And so along those lines, 
Landwatch is sort of the, I guess, the regional guardian of that land use system, making sure that as considerations for conservation and development are being made, they are taking into account upholding the tenants of that land use system. Okay, on that end, tell us a little bit about what Deschutes County is working on right now in terms of um, trying to make it easier to develop farmland. Sure, there's a, there's a particular issue that Deschutes County is looking into right now. Um, they refer to it as non-prime lands. Um, it's, a, it's not a definition that is a part of the land use system. It's sort of, it would be a new definition, but essentially trying to uh, look at farm and forest lands, in particular farmlands that have a, a soil type of one through six. One through six, uh, when the land use system was designed, were thought to be productive lands. And those were, those were lands that should be kept for farming because they have the potential to actually allow people to derive a meaningful livelihood in agriculture. And so the exchange was tax breaks, um, but the designation on the land became exclusive farm use. And so Deschutes County is questioning whether some of these, some farms in particular areas of the county ought to uh, have some leniency and be considered for other types of development that would run contrary to farming. And so through this inventory of non-prime lands, uh, Landwatch's position is, well, the state clearly defines the requirement for what constitutes farmland as having soil types one through six. And so all of these places that the county is evaluating now, they are all places that have soil types of one through six now. Uh, so Landwatch doesn't really understand why there would be the need to create this flexibility uh, when you know, the tax benefits have been in place for so long and the resource uh, value of keeping those large farms intact for wildlife um, and for kind of the general agricultural economy that uh, is so important to Oregon, why we would erode that now doesn't really make a lot of sense. Well, doesn't it make sense that they just want to develop it? I mean, you know, from the time Phil Henderson was elected, I mean, he, I remember we did our endorsement interview with him. He talked about, you know, this farmland that he was hoping he could convince the state, you know, we're not like the valley, we're, mm -hmm. we're over here on lava, and shouldn't we be able to just develop more quickly, frequently, with greater, greater mass? Yeah, I mean, you make a really good point. And basically, when county commissioners are elected, they have, they have a lot of authority. And fortunately, in Oregon, um, you know, our hope is that county commissioners will have the wherewithal to make decisions that are consistent with the land use system. However, when they don't, organizations like Landwatch, if attempts to um, convince the county to uphold the land use system fail, the state has the Land Use Board of Appeals. And so um, Landwatch can appeal the issues to LUBA um, and ask them to take another look. And, and LUBA can uh, overturn a decision that a county court sure. makes. Um, so it's really important think, to have those safeguards. Yeah, I think LUBA is getting pretty familiar with our county with I regard so. to marijuana laws and you know the track record right now is it's costing a lot of money, the county taxpayers a lot of money for a lot of failed LUBA appeals. Mm -hmm. Am I, I think I'm fairly accurate on that. 
Laurel, you know more about those. <laughs> you're you're accurate, yeah. Okay, yeah. Um, uh, ben, let's talk specifically about the work around Thornburg. I know Thornburg had been um, something that Landwatch had litigated in the past, um, and it appears to be the resort that keeps on coming back. Um, is it you guys are? It's back on the table now for development. What's your role in um, speaking about that resort? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so Thornburg has sort of been around for 10 plus years and the developers continue to bring forward these proposals for development there. Um, right now it's you know, something like a thousand units, three golf courses, three man-made lakes and uh, Landwatch is really, uh, its role now is holding the county accountable um, to a piece of its own code that says for these destination resorts, there will be no net uh, negative impact to fish and wildlife and thus their habitat. And so our concern now is that the proposed development would require 6 million gallons of water per day. Um, 6 million gallons is significantly more than the city of Ashland uses each day. And that water would be coming from a, a, a deep well from an aquifer that feeds Wyshoots Creek. So it's cold water, there's sensitive fish there. Um, you know, that is a, a very important water source for this community. And so our question is, do we want to allow this development to take that much of our precious water resource for the kind of development that they want there? Now, it's not, we, at Landwatch, we're taking out the subjectivity. What we're really looking at is, does this development, can they prove that they can mitigate these impacts. And thus far they haven't. And so Landwatch is asking the county to not approve this proposal until this developer can prove beyond the shadow of a doubt that they in fact can mitigate not only the quantity but also the quality of the water that would be used. I seem to remember with that developer in the early stages, they had worked aggressively to get irrigation district water rather than going to the well, but that had not been successful. I think Todd Heiser in a previous incarnation had worked on that. Um, is that I, I had not heard that they were now 100% going down into the aquifer for their needs. Um, and that's where that, that's where that development sits right now. I'm not certain if it's 100%. I know it's a lot of it. And more to the point, how they're proposing to mitigate is sort of this uh, at least now, it's a pretty opaque strategy that you know takes water from one farmer who's going to rest water rights in one place and another, and so it's um, it is not a very clean, well articulated strategy, which leaves Landwatch um, very skeptical. And so, until we can see it presented in a cogent way that uh, is clear, we're asking the county to uh, to say no to this one. Okay. Um, tell us a little bit about the work that you're doing right now on the Deschutes um, with uh, U.S. Fish and Wildlife and trying to get to minimum flows. Sure. Um, so the, the current opportunity is called the Habitat Conservation Plan. And essentially the irrigation districts are, um, they are proposing some conservation measures to um, Oregon Fish and Wildlife Service. And Fish and Wildlife Service is they're taking into account what 
the irrigators are proposing to do to essentially have enough water for farmers and for other human uses, but also ensure that the river um, gets what it needs to sustain healthy populations of fish. Uh, obviously, the spotted frog is a big issue uh, in Central Oregon now too, so taking into account uh, impacts of drawing down on water resources and how that affects habitat for fish and wildlife. So um, Landwatch got involved because we see this as a what we describe as a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity because once this plan goes into effect, uh, it is in place for 30 years and it actually provides some accountability. So where the irrigators go in saying, this is how we are asking Fish and Wildlife Service to hold us accountable, it's important that the standards the Fish and Wildlife Service uh, decides on and agrees to are rigorous enough that there's enough water that stays in stream year round to sustain those fish and frog populations while also giving irrigators and the community the water um, that we all need. And so that's, that's kind of at stake right now. And on first blush, the, uh, the initial proposal is not strong enough to sustain those um, in-stream needs of the river. And so um, we were expecting feedback from Fish and Wildlife Service this summer, but that's being pushed off to the winter. So in the meantime, um, you know, we are, we're still hoping to see the, the final product from Fish and Wildlife Service reflect uh, a greater minimum flow in the river year round. Ben, right now, isn't the um, irrigation districts, they don't have a mandated amount of water that they have to keep in the river. Is that correct? So I will, uh, let me frame this by saying that the water issues are not my strong suit. Though okay. I'm loving learning coming up to speed on yeah. that. However, I will say that anyone you talk to who is an expert in water law and on water issues, they will all describe the complexities of the system and how there are, there are so many confusions about what is and what isn't allowed. Um, some of the irrigation districts in particular, they enforce a kind of use it or lose it water right. And so you've got farmers who are actually, they're flooding their properties because if they don't sure. consume the water that they have a right for um, in a, a required duration of time, they risk losing it. Right. Obviously. Well, I can, I can sympathize with you because every time we write an article on some kind of water issue, we get three or four people who are eager to correct us on what minutia we, yes. we got mistakes on. And uh, it seems like a no-win scenario when you wait in there. Yeah, I mean, and it is. It's incredibly complex. Um, it seems like there has to be a better way. And I hope that sort of the forces at play can can come together and and find a solution that allows Central Oregon, uh, you know, to have the water necessary for all of our, our different uses. Because to me, it seems like there's a discussion about allocation uh, and how it is conserved that should result in enough to go around. Well, I'm intrigued by the fact that, I, I like the fact that there are some minimums because with the people are starting to get their interest level raised regarding the piping issue for irrigation districts because of the amount of money that's now being allocated for those piping projects. And the question back is what is the return? Yeah. And right now what you get is a lot of these irrigation districts piping and under the auspices of an environmental 
Um, it's like it's an environmental issue, but the water is not allocated back to the stream. As soon as TID piped their canal, they put a bunch of water rights up for sale, which mm -hmm. I thought, wow, you know, you got a federal grant to pipe this and water rights are for sale. We could go down a million rabbit yeah. holes, but I think for me, the, the issue is that with the, with people starting to realize, I think the estimate for piping on those irrigation canals is a billion dollars to from, mm -hmm. from start to finish. Sure. And that's a lot of taxpayer dollars for dot, 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 you know, it certainly is. And I mean, your observation is astute. I feel like the, you know, big pipe piping has been portrayed as, as kind of the gold standard solution for conservation because initially the discussion was around all the water leaching into the ground that was in these canals or evaporating because the sun right. them. And in actuality, while that is a piece of the discussion, uh, I feel like there is so much more to be gained from uh, having a discussion about on-farm conservation, ways in which people are incentivized to actually conserve water. Um, and those are far less expensive. And, you know, it's sort of a, a package of a lot of different elements resulting in a comprehensive solution that is good for the future of our, our water here in Central Oregon. Yeah, I won't go drop down that hole anymore. <laughs> I've got other questions, but yeah, <laughs> those are it's a it's a it's a really timely and I think um, interesting issue as it unfolds because it's change within the water you know, cycle of use. Yeah. And, and that's really, I think, what's triggering a lot of this, because I don't know that it was really on people's radar, like, oh, well, they're going to pipe it, it's going to cost, yes. they got a grant for it, it it's, it's not going to matter. But I think now as the price tags come out, and they, the mm -hmm. amount of money that's being spent, and, and, and what's the return? Well, the return is to hobby farmers paradise. So. Exactly right. You know, and something else I want to say on the topic of water is that well, Landwatch has been involved in water issues for a long time, for most of, its, of our 35 years. It wasn't until recently that we uh, hired someone to be our kind of full-time point of contact for all things water-related. Um, when Landwatch hired Todd Heisler about a year and a half ago, who came from running the Streets River Conservancy, and you know, hopefully you'll have Todd on the show at some point because he has an incredible perspective to share. But ultimately, there are other water specific organization in Central Oregon and their role is to kind of play in in collaboratives and so you know you've got irrigation district staff um, on the boards of these organizations and you know, it's pretty easy to see that collaborating while that is very important that's not the only role of the conservation community here in Central Oregon. And so having Todd on the Landwatch team allows Landwatch to take a similar tack to the way that it has approached the land use system when it comes to water, which is being a watchdog and advocating for some of these outcomes that are maybe, they're perhaps a little more contentious than a collaborative oriented organization would be willing to take. And so Landwatch, uh, we feel very strongly that solving some of these huge water conundrums is at the heart of ways that Landwatch can best support our communities. So we're grateful to be kind of wading into this, um, though we know it is very challenging work. And we're grateful to have Todd working on it with us. Well, that's a good segue into another aspect. Laurel and I were talking about this before the interview and that Landwatch has always been um, 
you know, very lawyerly, willing to go to court, willing to, willing to hold a lot of these um, developments to a legal standard. And um, certainly in this water area, as you're mentioning, there does seem to me to need both. You want a collab you want collaborative organizations that's great but you also want other organizations that are going to be um really a watchdog as you said where you're keeping an eye on you know are these people conforming to the agreements that they struck possibly with the collaborative groups over here on the right and maybe now somebody got elected and thinks that farmland should now be put to development and is that the best use of that land for for all the state not just the people who live here so um, maybe you could speak a little more to Landwatch's role past and also now as the new executive director as you see yourself moving forward. I think that's something people are keen on. Sure, happily. Well, <clears throat> um, I think it would be helpful to know that when I was interviewing for the job and I was talking to the board, um, I started my interview by saying if Landwatch feels it needs an attorney, to be its executive director, then I'm not the person for that job. I'm not a trained attorney. However, I recognize the importance of litigation as a tool when civil conversations are not enough. And where I come from, um, my, my background has been in conservation, but most of it has been in community organizing. And so I've worked on wilderness campaigns in very conservative communities. As you can well imagine, wilderness is not a welcomed topic at a lot of dinner tables sure. um, in, say, Wheeler County. And so over um, you know, my time in conservation and kind of forming my own philosophy about how an organization like Landwatch could be most effective, I feel it is very strong, it is very important to have exploratory conversations with people uh, in particular whom we may not see eye to eye with to learn as much as possible about you know, what, is, what is important because maybe that shapes our own thinking. But at a certain point, there are kind of um, bottom line values that Landwatch exists to uphold for our community, our stakeholders, our supporters. And we have um, a finite amount of tools to do that work with. I recognize uh, how contentious lawsuits can be, but I also recognize how effective they are. And so my personal philosophy is try to have a civil conversation, try to find a middle ground solution. Um, and if we're not able to uh, accept that it is not personal, but because of the circumstance we find ourselves in, Landwatch sure. is deeply positioned with two attorneys on staff to you know, take the issues to court when necessary, when the issues are, when the stakes are too high and the issues are too important to, uh, you know, just kind of sit by and, and let something bad happen to our community. So obviously hope, we hope not to use litigation, but um, we recognize that it is a very effective tool. Great. Uh, Laurel, well, we're running out oh. of time. I know, do you have? Yeah, this is probably the last question. If you could just briefly talk about um, what you're doing in the Bend Central District, and it seems to be kind of a shift away from um, what you've done in the past to like a urban infill project. Sure. Yeah, so the Bend Central District is really exciting for us. And you know, I, back to the, the earlier question, Landwatch does have a, a re reputation in the history of being a litigious organization. Um, but something that Landwatch has also been good about is engaging community and proactive campaigns. When we think about the Bend Central District, you know, going back a few years to when the urban growth boundary um, was last expanded, 
that uh, Landwatch's work resulted in a reduction in potential sprawl for Bend by 70%. That's a big deal. That was a lot of community participation. So moving forward with that work and trying to um, you know, promote housing choices, livability, transportation options, try to make our community within our urban growth boundary and our city as livable as possible. The Bend Central District is the heart of Bend and it is, uh, I would say, put it mildly, uh, it is under, underutilized um, for its full, what its full potential could be. Um, there is, not that this will uh, be its fate, but it has the potential to house as many as 10,000 people. Right now, I think it's in the low hundreds. So Ben saw that as an opportunity to engage the community in a dialogue about what do we want this to become? Because it could be really profound for shaping our, the future of our community. And so Landwatch has sort of been at the fore of uh, forming a really great collaborative um, that has helped to articulate what the community wants for the Bend Central District. And so now the city council, Bend City Council, is making some decisions about kind of uh, its fate, I guess. Um, right, we've got uh, up for consideration uh, approval of an urban renewal district and then uh, tax incremental financing, which would define how different types of projects would be funded in the future. So there's some really exciting stuff happening there. Obviously it's, it's something that is going to be happening for the next 30 years, but right now we're sort of shaping the foundation at the city level of, of what that Bend Central District will become. Uh, and Landwatch is very grateful to play a part in that. I think the thing we're most uh, interested in is making sure that the sky bridge happens. <laughs> Every discussion, if it's not about the sky bridge, I kind of just glaze over like. <laughs> I think you should join the visionaries board and, uh, you know, start laughing at. I, I'm pretty one dimensional. I have one vision. Just make sure the sky bridge goes <laughs> over, the, over the railroad tracks. Well, I will communicate that to Moe Newbold, our uh, yeah. urban planning. Great. Well, Ben, we are of a couple minutes left. Anything we skipped over that you'd like to mention or uh, comment on? No, this is great. Um, you know, I think the last thing I would add is COVID times are certainly unique and I am eager to meet the Landwatch community and people uh, who are excited to talk about the future of Bend and the communities of Central Oregon. And so kind of an open invitation. If anybody wants to reach out to have a conversation with me, I would welcome that. Um, you can find my contact information on Landwatch's website, www.colw.org. Thanks, Ben. We really appreciate it. This has been the Ben Don't Break podcast. Uh, come back to us next Wednesday and we will have, Laurel, who's our next guest that we're having? Um, our next guest is Todd Montgomery from Oregon State University talking about tourism. Wow, perfect. Okay, thanks, Ben. Appreciate Thank it. Thank you.